Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 51. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to talk about the 1997 animated classic, Hercules. Um, I don't know about you, but this was a very popular one in my house. My brother and I basically wore this VHS out. This one escaped me for a long time. That's that's shocking to me. I don't know what it was. It wasn't like there was no interest. I don't know what I was doing in 1997 that I couldn't get to a movie theater, especially because this came out, I think this was June. This was like the first one right after school let out. I don't know. Like There was nothing that I can recall that was that significant in my life that I would have missed a Disney release. Well, uh, yeah, because I remember when you uh, we went and bought the DVD, and I don't remember if it's that, and this was, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, I don't remember if it's that you had never seen the movie, period, or if you had only seen it once. Whatever it was, though, I was like totally astonished. I think I had seen part of it. Like, I caught the tail end of it on TV, and I just never saw the whole thing. Interesting. And I was like, oh, let me get the DVD so I can watch the whole thing. So for all intents and purposes, you didn't sit and watch this movie full out until about seven years ago. I was was in my 20s, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we're going to go right into it here. Um, We meet the muses who tell us the story of how Zeus defeated the Titan of the Earth. On Mount Olympus, the gods gather to meet Zeus and Hera's baby son, Hercules. Zeus gifts him with Pegasus. Then Hades shows up, but rejects an invitation to stay longer. Um, He then returns to the underworld to meet with Pain and Panic and the Fates, who tell him in 18 years the planets will align and Hades will unleash the Titans and rule all as long as Hercules doesn't fight. So he sends Pain and Panic to serve a potion to baby Hercules in order to turn him mortal before killing him. Hercules drank all but one drop of the potion, failing to turn him uh, totally mortal. Um, But actually, no. Well, the thing is, so he is mortal, but he is found by two farmers and is raised as a human Um, in spite of the fact that while he drank all but one drop of this potion, he still retained his godly strengths. Uh, Pain and Panic lie and tell Hades that Hercules is dead. As an adolescent, Hercules is a cast out due to his strength, and his adopted parents tell him that they found him wearing the symbol of the gods. He goes to the Temple of Zeus for answers, and Zeus's statue comes to life and tells Hercules that he is his father and that Hercules must prove himself to be a true hero in order to become a god again and come back to Mount Olympus. He reunites him with Pegasus and tells him to seek out uh, Philoctetes, who will train him to be a true hero. Phil turns Hercules down at first, but after some persuasion from Zeus, reluctantly agrees to come out of retirement and trains Hercules. Years later, Hercules clumsily rescues Megara from a centaur, Nessus, and is smitten with her, although she couldn't be less interested. They then learn that she sold her soul to Hades to save her boyfriend, who then in turn left her. Hades finds out that Hercules is alive and hatches a new plan to kill him. 
uh, Hercules and Phil arrive in Thebes to show people that he's a hero, but uh, initially he fails in trying to prove uh, that he is one, of course. Meg arrives and tells Hercules that two children are stuck under a rock in the gorge, and Hercules rescues them to prove that he's a hero. Unbeknownst to Hercules, the kids, quote-unquote, are pain and panic, and this entire thing is a trap that was set up by Hades. A giant snake arrives, but Hercules cuts its head off, thinking that he's beaten him. Well, that just causes the head to be replaced with three more heads. He then realizes that he can't defeat him this way, so he causes a rock slide to crush the creature and becomes a famous hero. But he finds out from Zeus that he still hasn't proven himself enough to go back to Mount Olympus. Hades tells Meg that if she helps him kill Hercules, he will grant her her freedom. Because, like I said earlier... She sold her soul, and he has no uh, qualms with reminding her that I own you! Uh, um, <laughs> Meg pursues Hercules um, and convinces him to blow off his day with Phil and spend it with her, and she ends up falling for him. Phil overhears Hades and Meg talk about the demise of Hercules and runs off to tell Hercules about this before he can hear Meg tell Hades that she won't help him. Phil tells Hercules about her intentions, but Hercules refuses to believe it. After an unintentional physical confrontation, Phil storms off and Hercules is approached by Hades, who tells him if he gives up his uh, powers for 24 hours that Meg will be set free and Hercules agrees to do so if Meg is safe. They shake on the deal, and Hades tells Hercules that Meg was working for him all along, and though she does try to deny it out uh, to release the Titans and destroy Zeus. Meg and Pegasus convince Phil to come back and help Hercules. Hercules defeats the Cyclops, but a column falls on Meg, eventually killing her. But first, Hercules leaves to pursue Hades, who, along with the Titans, have taken control over Mount Olympus. He helps free the gods who fight back and help him defeat the Titans. Hercules returns to Meg to find that she has died, and he goes to the underworld to get her back from the river Styx and makes a deal with Hades to trade spots with her. As the fates go to cut the cord on his life... Um, it turns out that this sacrifice was enough to make him a true hero, and the cord can't be cut as he is now a god again. He punches Hades into the river... And Hades is then dragged down by the souls that are in the river sticks. He returns Meg's soul to her body, and they go to Mount Olympus together. Uh, she is mortal, though, and not a god, so she cannot go with him to Mount Olympus. All she can do is stand outside the gate. He is offered his spot back on the mountain, but he rejects it to stay on Earth with Meg and is turned mortal again. Um... I still can't believe that it took you this long to see this movie. Like, as I'm reading this plot, I'm thinking to myself, like, how did you not see this movie when it came out? No, especially because I do really like Greek mythology. Like, anytime I took a class in school, like, it was always something I was really into. And I'm happy that, you know, after Disney pretty much cornered the market on fairy tales, that they kind of went this route and tackled a different kind of storytelling. Yeah, and this movie when it came out, was on the heels of Pocahontas and Hunchback, Hunchback, both of which were sort of box office disappointments for Disney. 
Well, that was one of the things that I read about this was they decided to do it because it was a little bit more lighthearted. And in comparison to Pocahontas and Hunchback, they were both pretty dark films, especially, you know, Pocahontas is obviously based off a true story. Hunchback based off of a fiction. But still, Hunchback is a really, really dark film. Yeah, it is. And they wanted to go with something a little bit safer and something that was really comedy forward. Um I think, going from the jump, I think that the muses are such a smart vehicle for moving this story forward. I love the muses. I always have. Yeah, it's it's such a great opening, and I love how they use them for the transitions from scene to scene, because you're jumping through really time and space, so it's a good way to ground everything together. Yeah, and they, within themselves, provide good comic relief. Absolutely. Um, I love the parody of this god as a cast-out. I thought that was great, because otherwise, uh, you know, I mean, yes, he was kidnapped. Yes, he was turned mortal from being a god, but otherwise, why would you feel bad for Hercules? Yeah. They, They kind of had to, like... For, a la- for all intents and purposes, literally and figuratively humanize him. Right, and I think it was a smart choice to make him not know his own strength rather than go with like a Gaston kind of approach where if he's really buff and egotistical, I don't think it would have been as funny. Yeah, I think that him as a klutz is great comedy and I love the juxtaposition and it, it does enough where it's funny... But it's not totally over the top, nor does it get dragged out or feel like the, the joke has just like beaten itself to death. No, and especially because it lends itself to the whole training sequence with Phil. Yes. It's fantastic. The only thing that bothers me a little bit, well, there's two things. One is that when Hercules is kidnapped, he's an infant and he's not in the same room with his parents. He's off on like a side cloud if you will and yes he's got pegasus there but i was like come on this is the easiest kidnapping ever and it was so obvious well yes and no i I mean i understand what you're saying you know for all intents and purposes a baby especially an infant like that would sleep in the same room as his parents or her parents but it's mount olympus it's not like it's one two three main street in Smithfield. Well, that's the other thing. There's no security. Like, you're you're talking about, this is Zeus. He's a god. I know he fights with lightning, but you don't have better security? Well, the only people that could get there were gods. A mortal could not just walk in there. So I guess the idea was that Hades probably is the only person that would ever want to do something like this, but he's not going to leave the underworld to come do it. Of course, he doesn't. He sends pain and panic. That's the other thing. And... I'm about to crush this plot in one fell swoop because I don't like when films can just be completely unraveled. Okay. Hades, Lord of the Dead, right? Yeah. You didn't see Hercules' soul come in. So how did you not realize that he was alive and that pain and panic didn't finish the deal? True. I never thought about that. Yep. Air's right out of the balloon. Thanks. We're done. Thanks for listening. That's a fantastic point. I never thought about that before. That's why I'm here. Good for you. Um, well, anyway, um, there's just so much about this movie. It's not that the plot is that involved. 
it's a pretty straightforward movie for all intents and purposes. Hercules wants to get back to Mount Olympus. It's it's sort of it's sort of formulaic. And the only cog in the plan other than Hades wanting to unleash this you know uh, attack on Mount Olympus is Meg. And I got to be honest with you. I really I dig her as a character in this movie. I like the fact that she's in it. I love her attitude. She's so unlike any other, which because she's not a Disney princess. She, Meg's just not a princess. Well, that's it. I like that they went with the anti-princess, but I think you can kind of compare her to Esmeralda a little bit. And that's not just because, you know, they're coming on the heels of each other, but Esmeralda was not a Disney princess either. She wasn't even with the leading man in that movie. You know, she doesn't end up with, with Quasimodo. Right. But I think that they're, but they're sort of different, though, because Esmeralda is sort of for the greater good. Meg is just about Meg. Right. And you can't really trust her where Esmeralda you can. Right. You know that Esmeralda is not a villain. Meg kind of teeter totters, but, you know, but she's both working sides. with the villain. Right. She's unique in terms of her attitude and her body language. If anything, She's more like Jessica Rabbit in that she's got that sort of sultriness and you don't know if you can trust her until you get towards the end of the movie. She's definitely more femme fatale. Without question. Uh, but I, I just, I love how different she is from everything else. I like the fact, I think she's a strong character. And I think that, you know, to be honest with you, I think if there's... If there's one knock that I have against this movie, I like Hercules as a character. He's not dislikable, but for all the years that I've been watching this movie, it's all of the other characters to me that I think I like them all more than the title character. Especially Meg, because she's a scene stealer. She is, and so is Hades. Yeah. And so is Phil at times. Yeah. Zeus is great, and I like Rip Torn in just about anything. And, you know, I thought that he, as the father figure, was great, but he was a god but never took himself that seriously. So, again, kind of with that comic relief in the juxtaposition, but he was still, when he had to be, he was still this, you know, all-knowing god, and he was larger than life. I really like the first time he meets adolescent Hercules because Hercules is obviously shocked about what's happening, that this statue just came to life. And he's like, hey, it's me. I'm your dad. And he's just totally, you know, laying this on him without giving him a second to di digest any of it. But it's it's great. It's a great little comedic scene. And in that scene where the statue comes to life and even any other time that Hercules goes to Zeus's temple to speak to him, it reminds me of Mufasa in the sky. Yeah. It's a bit yeah. different because Mufasa was a vision, and that was far more spiritual than this was, but I still think that there's a comparison that can be drawn there. I never really noticed that because this is another place that I find flaw. Um... You're telling me that Hercules has never been to a temple before? 
you know, he's approaching age 18. So I'm thinking he's like 16, 17, somewhere around there when he meets Zeus for the first time. And that's the first time Zeus has spoken to him. Well, it's the first time he knew he was his father. So remember, he only goes there for the specific purpose of speaking with Zeus. If he had ever gone there before, he could have... Who's to say that he would have went by himself? He could have been with other people. And even if he wasn't, unless he's there to speak to him specifically, Zeus is only going to you know, pursue Hercules once he knows that Hercules is aware that he's the father. Because remember... They decided that they were not going to interfere, that they were going to let the farmer and his wife raise him as their own, and they right. were going to keep an eye on him from afar. Right, right. So it's it's one of these scenarios where they're not going to bring it up to him until he's ready, until, until it's time for him to know. All right, I'll give you that one. So um, I I just, again, at the risk of repeating myself, it's not that the movie is that complicated. It's sort of same old song and dance it certainly has far less subplots and far less depth than a lot of other disney films but i think that what i like about it now because when the movie came out i was 11 so kind of starting to grow out of the disney phase for a lack of better term the disney phase and I then, and I still do now, appreciate the adult humor that this movie has. Because this movie has a lot more, I think, adult humor than you realize as a kid. It's not just the adult humor. There are so many Easter eggs in here. Like, just references to, you know, when he goes to save the little boys, uh, they say, call 911, but they say it in Roman numerals. Yes, Meg gets, you know, she backs up into Cupid's statue, so she gets pierced by the arrow. There's just so many little lines and so many um, Hollywood quotes. Like when they go to uh, when they go to Thebes, I uh, I think it's Phil that says, "I'm walking here." And yeah. There's a lot of little, um, just a lot that adults can appreciate. Well, that's it. Most of the adult humor comes from Phil, Meg, and and Hades. Sure. Um. But yeah, he has that line. He talks about how the city is dangerous and it's filled with freaks and like all the other things that a kid would be over his head. You mentioned the Easter eggs before. Um, when Meg first sees Pain and Panic as the animals and she goes, oh, look, two rodents <laughs> looking for a theme park. Yes, this that's is, fantastic. Yeah. The ability to poke fun at themselves. Right. Um, when they have the uh, scene with I Won't Say... And the muses are the statues, and the one is tipped over, holding her head. Oh, that's yeah. a haunted mansion Easter egg. Not lost on me. At and all. You, and we have Scar, when Hercules is wearing Scar. I did not appreciate that at all. Oh, I did. I was just fine with it. I, I mean, I get what they were going for. He's decked out in all of his hero attire with his Air Nikes or Air Hercs or whatever they are, um, which is another great Easter egg because. Uh, Nike is actually a goddess in Greek mythology, the the goddess of triumph, right. and that's what the company's named after. So that that was kind of a nice touch. Um, plus, you know, you're at the peak of, you know, Jordan's popularity. Um, yeah, so it's a big pop culture reference, right? 
But and that's at, and that still carries over because now you've got LeBron James, although he I think is wearing Jordan shoes now. But like these, the every major athlete has some big endorsement. Oh, for sure. But back to Scar. I don't know. I think that that's a I mean, yes, he was the villain. Yes, we see him die at the end of the film. And I think that's more my issue with it is how did you come across his pelt? How did you get this? Not so much that we're seeing Scar splayed out like this. How'd you get it? It's an Easter egg. I didn't really look into it that far. I just thought it was funny. Well, you know what? The other thing, too, is, though, I'm wondering if they were afraid that if they made it any other color that it would be confused with Mufasa or Simba. That's a very good point. No, because that would that would really be in poor taste. We've already seen Mufasa lying there. I don't need to see that again. Right. But, you know, a different Easter egg that I would have appreciated more than that, um, you know, how there's the internet rumor of all the Pixars being connected. If we're doing like real talk here... Poseidon and Zeus are brothers and Poseidon's son is Triton. So really, I wish they had some kind of little mermaid connection because technically they're first cousins. Yeah. And and there weren't like I looked into it to see if there were more Easter eggs. But other than these couple that we mentioned, there weren't really any. No, just um, that at the end of I won't say it kind of sounds like kiss the girl. And I think that Mencken did that on purpose. Probably. And we'll talk about the music in a few minutes here. Um, Towards the um, towards the midway point of this movie, I started to think not that I think it's overtly offensive, of course, Uh, I don't. Um, But there is an awful lot of male advancement jokes thrown at Meg that probably don't fly anymore like when Hades says um, maybe I've been throwing the wrong curves at him and he he gestures along with it yeah Um, I just think that if that movie were getting made now and supposedly we're getting the live action remake I feel like Disney would have played that safe I don't think they would have touched it I don't think they do now I don't think you can and post me too right no way um but every advancement on her is cringeworthy, and I love it. Just because of the way that she handles it. Yeah. Especially with Phil, with Hades. Like I said, I just think that she's an incredibly strong character. And I think that people talk about these strong female characters in Disney movies. Specifically, we talked about it in episode number one, uh, when we talked about The Little Mermaid. And by the way, we still have another week left in our contest. Uh, go to the social media. Uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Monoreal Radio to see how you can enter to win a copy of The Little Mermaid on Blu-ray, DVD, digital combo pack. But I had mentioned on that episode over a year ago now that she was the Gen X Disney princess. And I think that she set the table for a lot of the strong princesses that aren't, as you said in the first episode or second episode, the flowery princesses. Right. Because Jasmine, Belle, Mulan. They're much more defiant. They're much more defiant, even Pocahontas, even though that was based on a true story. Um, Even to a lesser extent, Nala. Um, But she is so... She's so different from all of them. Yeah. Just because of her general attitude. 
because the others are the others are independent but she's really not that she's not independent but i i feel like i'm not articulating this very well i think i feel like she's more than independent and the interesting thing about that is that she's literally owned by hades right i think it's her i think it's her i don't care what you have to say about me attitude i think really her and Esmeralda were the first ones to really put men in their place. They're both a lot more sarcastic. And I think that was part of the whole, you know, if you think about the time period, it was that women's lib in the nineties and, you know, women started becoming a lot more assertive and, you know, it's really the sarcasm. I think that differentiates them from any other Disney I don't want to say princess because technically they're not, but any other, any other, you know, strong Disney female. Mm-hmm. And they really played up. Um, and I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but with the animation, they really played up on her swinging her hips around. Like she just, every, she carries herself so differently. She carries herself sort of similar to Esmeralda, but in a much more selfish way. I mean, that's the thing. Esmeralda is a little bit more va-va-voom because she's a dancer and all that. But one of the things that I did notice, and it was one of the things that was driving me crazy, was when we first meet Meg, um, you know, they're in the pond or whatever, and she squeezes out her hair like three different times. I'm like, how many times are you going to do that? And I just remember like thinking about it and it was taking forever. But in the context of what you're saying, she's also bending over. And I, now that I'm kind of putting this all together, I'm wondering if that was also supposed to lend itself to, you know, her being portrayed as a little more sexy. Right. And Phil licks his hand and greases his hair back and tells her that he's real too. There's just, the whole scene is really good. Um, and I'm interested when they eventually do this live action remake because it sounds like they're moving forward with it. I f- I'm, I'm interested to see how much of that they play on. They, I don't think they do it quite as much, although it's going to be more forgiving in a live action film because in spite of the fact that it's a Disney movie based on an animated film, you can still sort of gear it more towards adults because it's not, for a lack of a better term, a cartoon. Right. I mean, these are more than just cartoons, but to to put it on its very simple terms, I feel like you don't have to play it quite as safe. Yeah, you can kind of take a little bit more edge with it. Right. Um, so I love when the Titans come back. They're almost zombie-like yes. when they go after Mount Olympus. And still, they're funny, though, because we're against Zeus and Hades. Mount Olympus is this way. And it's like so clear that Mount Olympus is there and they sort of just look at each other like for a beat and go, get Zeus! And <laughs> walk back. It's, it it kind of reminded me of when they take comedic liberty with the Hulk in the more modern um, Marvel movies. It kind of reminded me of O'Doyle rules, actually. <laughs> yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> just that like... You know, tunnel vision, one one singular focus. Yeah. Um, Although they're not focused. That's that's the whole joke of it. 
you have uh, anything else to add on the plot here before we move on? Uh, what was interesting to me, though, you had kind of hit on it before how um, it simplified. You know, I, I think out of all the reviews that we've done, this is kind of the one that we've moved through probably the fastest as far as the plot goes. Um, but I think that was definitely strategic on Disney's part because if you're going for real Greek mythology, Hercules actually had three wives. Uh, so obviously you're not going to touch that in a Disney film. Killing right. parents is one thing, but, you know, adultery is completely another. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why Meg is so interesting and so dynamic is because she was modeled after all three of them. Um, but I think because they were trying to steer clear of that aspect of it, this film actually more closely resembles Oedipus, if anything, as far as, you know, the fates and fulfilling a prophecy. And then, you know, the more obvious thing is when they go to Thebes, that was supposed to be where Oedipus took place. And they do, there's a couple of Easter eggs, which is, which are pretty funny, um, how they're referencing the floods and the, uh, I think the earthquakes. Um, and that was what happened after Oedipus's prophecy was fulfilled. And then Hercules talks about it. That was the date that they went on. And he's referencing the play. Right. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I guess I just find it interesting that like, you know, you don't want to tackle adultery, but like you'll go for Oedipus. Yeah. It's sort of an interesting choice. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. I get, you know why? Because I guess with the Oedipus thing, they it's a nod to it without them overtly discussing it i guess yeah and there's there's not enough there where a child's gonna pick up on it and question like oh what's this story right which if you're not familiar with it i'm not going to be the one to explain it right now yeah but as we stated before it's simplified in that i i literally can give you the motivation for every character in a sentence or less per character right you know, like even with Phil, you don't even need you don't even need a full statement. It's glory and recognition. That's his motivation. It's all he wants. Yeah. Glory and recognition. That's it. So it's it is very straightforward, but that's not to say that it's bad. It works for what it is. And especially after coming off of the last two films that were all intents and purposes flops, that were supposed to be these big epic journeys. I think in this case, simplifying it was probably this. It was probably the best decision they could have made. I agree. Um, speaking of the last two films, I do want to talk about the animation a little bit before oh, we I get wanna, into characters yeah. and yep. music. Um, one of the things that stands out to me, and I, I think it probably has to do with I, I'm a huge Hunchback fan. We haven't reviewed it on the show yet, but spoiler alert: I love that movie. Um, and I think my biggest beef with the animation here, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm I'm hating on it, because at the end of the day, you know, we we do this podcast every week because we love and respect what the Disney animators do so much. So it's not that I'm saying it's bad. It's just not my cup of tea. And what kills me is that, you know, you're talking about Mount Olympus and Greece, and then when Hercules is you know, mortalized and he comes to ancient Greece, I feel like there is so much that they could have done with the scenery that they didn't quite follow through with. And especially when you compare it to its predecessor and you think about what 
they did with Hunchback of Notre Dame and the detailed scenes that they did of Paris. I mean, come on. I feel like they kind of missed the mark a little bit and there was a lot more detailed work they could have done to make the the characters like pop off the background more. This in comparison looks so much more cartoony when the film that they did before was so much more realistic and that might have been a stylistic choice. I very well could have been. I think it was, um, which is why I'm about to disagree with you. Um, I love the art of this film. I love the fact that it's stylized to look like Greek Greek pottery came to life. Yeah, it does look flat. There's no doubt about that. And that also may have been Disney's way of playfully working around budget cuts. I don't know for certain, but maybe. My issue is not with them looking flat because I do like that you get like this really puts the two in 2D animation, which is cool. Um and and I'm totally on board with it being inspired by the pottery, all for it. They did the same thing with Aladdin, where it was inspired off the font, and that's why you get all these big poofy pants and things like that. Right. However, where they did it better in Aladdin is because these characters all look like they're in the same film. And that's what really drives me crazy about this one. Is like obviously Aladdin Jasmine look similar to the Sultan to Jafar. Like they all belong in the same world. Here I'm not even talking about Mount Olympus versus Earth. I'm talking about how like Zeus and Hera don't look like they're like they belong together and and none of the other gods that are kind of in and out, you know, they, they don't really spend a lot of time on a lot of the gods. They're just kind of back and forth, but I just feel like they don't all belong in the same scene. And it makes me nuts. And I mean, that might have to do with, you know, they're supposed to look like what the gods are representing. But I don't know. It just feels so disjointed to me. Right. Um, Even Hercules, like he's he's got such like a round cherub kind of face and like Zeus and Hera are all pointy. Right. And Hera, she almost looks like a Barbie doll. She's pink and her hair sparkles. Yeah, it's just, she looks more like a My Little Pony than a Barbie doll. Yeah, yeah, it's if if there's any one character to me that stands out as being a little over the top in terms of her look, she's the one. But I otherwise like the colors in this film. I like the glitter on Hera. I think that was pretty cool. I love the fact that Hades, his fire turns red when he gets really mad and he gets really. I love it. I guess that's the other thing too is you're you're mixing so many different kinds of characters, mythical creatures, humans, gods, you know, and, and the gods they like you said they all look different, they all represent different things. I just I feel like there's an awful lot going on here in spite of the fact that it's not a big cast. It really isn't. There's a there are scenes where there are a lot of characters but it's not a huge cast. Right. Like if you put it up against something like Beauty and the Beast for argument's sake, you've got the Beast and, you know, all of his sidekick. That That's what it really is, is that there's not a lot of sidekicks in this movie because the Beast has Cogsworth Lumiere and Mrs. Potts. Gaston has LeFou. Belle has her father. Like, yeah, you're you're branching out with that cast. Right. Um, I love the tile floor in Zeus's temple. I think it's crazy good. That's darn impressive, yeah. 
But that's what I'm talking about. I wish that had carried through the rest of the film, something so detailed to make the characters pop off. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's a stylistic choice. You don't agree with it. I think that it looks pretty good. I I think that the animation on Hydra was insane. I mean, I know he CGI'd. And you can tell because he stands out like a sore thumb. But I think he just looks cool. Mm, I think they lit him wrong. I think the light is hitting him at a bad angle, and it, it looks very disjointed from the scene. The only bit of animation in this film that I don't like is at the very end where Hercules and Megara get on the cloud and fly up to Mount Olympus. To me, that looks... It looks video gamey. And there's one point, too, where uh, he's riding Pegasus into the sun. And, like, eventually, yeah, it's going to be in silhouette. But just... I, I don't know. They lose detail on it far too quickly as they're riding off in a distance. Yeah. Well... Um, at any rate, we're interested to know what you guys have to say about the animation in this as well, because we're we're kind of kind of split down the middle on this. Yeah, we haven't been this split in a while, in a long time. So maybe you guys can sort of let us know your take on it. Which side of the fence are you on? The Jackie side or the Sean side? The right side or the wrong side? On Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Um. I'm trying to think. Do you want to talk about the characters first and then the music? Because I feel like I feel like the music is sort of the bread and butter of this movie. Yeah, and we've kind of dabbled into the characters already, so so let's just knock them out. This is one of the few films where, as I said, like uh, to, uh, admittedly, and I looked his name up yesterday, and I don't even remember the the uh, name of the actor that plays Hercules. Tate Donovan. Okay, so. My point is this. He's the title character. But he I, did Argo after this. That was like the most notable film that he was in. But there was like a gap between roles. But I'm just saying that for a title character of the film, I feel like he could have been any actor. Sure. And I, I st said it before. I like Hercules. He's not a dislikable character. He's got his quirks that I think are funny. I think that he's endearing in the fact that he wants to go home. Then that's sort of his motivation. Hercules wants to go home. He's like E.T. He just wants to go home. But he could have been anybody to me. I agree. He's sort of just... I, I think he's kind of flat. I think he's more memorable as an adolescent Yes. Than as an adult. And I think... Similar to Bambi. Right. I think that's the big challenge they're going to run into when they do the live action remake is do they cast one person or do they do two? Because what I'm really hoping for, I don't want to see the Captain America effect. That Benjamin Button face on the young body. It's creepy. We've, we've not mastered this effect yet. I don't want to see it again. Agree. Well, I think that they're going to get like a 16-year-old kid to play him as an adolescent. You'll get somebody in their late 20s or early 30s to play him as an adult. Uh, that's going to be tough. 
that's going to be tough, but we can, we'll talk about our casting predictions later. Yeah. We haven't uh, been able to do that in a while to, to pick our ideal cast because almost everything we've done has been announced already. Right. right. Um, I mentioned before Zeus. I like Rip Torn. It's just Rip Torn playing Zeus. That that's all it is. Yeah, but b- I like it. Big booming. He reminds me. Zeus reminds me a lot of Triton. Yeah, but not not in a rip offy way. No, not at all. Um, you have Susan Egan as Meg. Interestingly enough, Disney wanted nothing to do with her in this role. Really. Because she was the original Belle on Broadway. Yes. I thought that was after this film, though. No, it was before. Ah, So because she had already been Belle, they didn't want her. They wanted to keep her totally separate. They didn't think she could pull it off. She dropped her voice a tone, put on that sultriness, and sort of used... Betty Davis and Joan Crawford as her inspirations for wow. Meg. And that changed their tune on her. Wow. Obviously, she's got the vocal chops, and we'll talk about um, I Won't Say in a few minutes when we discuss the soundtrack in totality. But I said it before. I love everything about Meg, and I love what Susan Egan did with her. Agreed. I thought she was absolutely perfect casting. Agreed. Probably the most perfect, though, is Danny DeVito as Phil. He's probably my favorite character in this movie, besides Hades. Um, I think they modeled the character after him. And you know what's interesting, too? They almost didn't get him. They wanted him to audition for it, and he declined the audition. Hmm. And um, after they cycled through a couple of other choices, I think uh, Jack Nicholson was one of them. Um, They... They decided to go with Danny DeVito anyway, and they were like, no, here's the part. So they actually visited him on the set of Matilda, and they had lunch, and they offered him the role. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, Yeah, he was perfect as Philoctetes. I think he's got a great attitude. I love his delivery. And Danny DeVito is known as being the short guy. Yeah. And... I just, when I saw him on stage, or not on stage, when I saw him on screen for the first time, and he's so boisterous, and he's so aggressive. And loud. And loud and short. He just reminded me of Louis from Taxi. And obviously that was the character he played. Right. But to me, DeVito sort of, for a while, he was typecast. There's no doubt that he was typecast. Right, but he's one of those rare actors that makes that work for him. Yes. Instead of just, you're a one-trick pony, whenever Danny DeVito is cast, he's needed for that specific role. Um, right. And I think it just lends itself to the character, too, that like he, you know, you said it before, is that he wants the glory. He wants redemption. All these other heroes he's tried to train haven't worked out. My favorite being Achilles, by the way. I think that was hilarious. That's that's a good little Easter egg. Yeah. Um. What did, oh, what, what, what does he say? Sugar to heal? Something like that, <laughs> yes. He uses some kind of, uh, some kind of word. Well, Meshuggah is not a made-up word, but but some kind of curmudgeon-y, curmudgeon-y phrase. Yeah, something from Brooklyn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or some Joe Pesci, catcher, fresher, Russia. Exactly. And I forget what it is, but... Um, yeah, no, I, I I, don't think there's anyone else that could have done it yeah, like this. Yeah, you get an oive out of him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really good. 
I go back and forth between who is the best casting in this movie. Was it Susan Egan? Was it Danny DeVito? Or was it James Woods? And I'll be honest with you, I keep coming back to James Woods. I know that he doesn't have a lot of fans right now. Because <laughs> James Woods, regardless of what your opinion is on politics, and we don't talk politics on Monoreal Radio. No, he's one of these steer the people, car out of there. He's one of these people that shouldn't be on Twitter. <laughs> don't go on Twitter, James Woods. Well, he almost wasn't in this movie. Right. Well, I didn't know this until you told me about this right before we came on. Not only was he not the original cast, John Lithgow recorded the whole thing. And... I think it was that it just wasn't working because he was kind of like making Hades more of a laid back character. And then they had James Woods read for it and they liked what he was doing and making him a lot more snappy and aloof. Um, and uh, they cast him in it. And then this, I'm not sure how much truth there is, but I know this film had a lot of budgetary problems. Uh, they were running out and, uh, they weren't going to be able to finish and James Woods actually, he wanted to do it so bad and see the film come to fruition. He offered to kick back his salary to put into the rest of the funding. If that's true, that's an incredible story. Still shouldn't have a Twitter, but <laughs> you got a heart of gold there. He was perfect for this. He's got the perfect snark and a lot of his lines, especially with Meg, were ad-libbed. And actually the that's problems amazing. the problems that they ran into... And maybe part of why, if this rumor is true, why he kicked back some of his salary is that they said it would take weeks to animate two or three seconds worth of dialogue because he he talks so quickly. Right. And it was so drastically different than what Lithgow laid down. So his struggle in this was trying to slow his speech down a little bit. Right. Um, but I think that he is an all-time villain. And I think... That he's now starting to get, I mean, I think people always liked him, but you're starting to see now that he's getting his, he's getting his respect. You know, he's, he's getting his moment in the spotlight because Disney, in spite of the fact that James Woods shouldn't be on Twitter, um, they don't shy away from using Hades in any of the Halloween shows or, right. um, you know, in uh, Fantasmic, they, I'm not going to go so far as to say they put him front and center because that would imply that he's a lot more visible than he actually is. But he isn't one of these villains that's fallen by the wayside that you sort of forget about. He's one of few, very few villains who doesn't actually die. Well, I guess that's because he's technically already dead. Right. But, uh, I, I guess maybe it's these later Renaissance movies. Governor Radcliffe doesn't die. Uh, and Jafar, Jafar eventually dies in the sequel. So I guess he doesn't really count. Right. Um, but there were some other names that were thrown in there. Wayne Knight, Jim Cummings, Paul Schaefer from the CBS Orchestra. Or it was Paul Schaefer and the CBS Orchestra. Yes. For those of you who are old enough to remember watching David Letterman. Um yeah, all around a fun cast. Um, and I think that they all work perfectly where they're supposed to. Again, um, Hercules is kind of a flat character, but it but it works. 
He's he it works for what he is. And I like um we didn't talk about Panic and Pain yet. Oh, we didn't talk about Pain and Panic. That's right. The, they're amazing. I mean, that was written. I think they still made Bobcat audition for it. Which is ridiculous because it was like written for him. Yeah, Bobcat Goldthwaite. Yeah. Um that that's incredible casting. And then um Matthew uh Frewer. Right. Who was Big Russ Thompson in, in Honey, I Shrunk, Honey, I Shrunk the, Kids. the Kids. He's actually probably more known for his voice work yeah. than, than anything live action. Yeah. But I'm surprised you can't identify. You know, when we did the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids review, we talked about how distinct his voice is and how he loses words sometimes, which is really ironic considering he's a voice. <laughs> yes. What's up? Zelensky! Um... You know, it's remarkable how many lines get lost in that movie considering he's a voice actor. Yeah. And you can't even tell that it's him in Hercules. Yeah. Let's talk about Pain and Panic um, before we move on to the music. Steen, uh, scene stealers. Every time. they're there. Every time they're there. Um, My favorite is when they act as the two little boys and they're using phrases like gee willigers or whatever it is that they say. And it's, it's so, you know, it's such a, well, it's not even really like a modern phrase, but it's just so jarring to come out of the mouth of a kid. It's great. Yeah. Um, because even for ancient Greece, that phrase seems outdated. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know what happened a thousand years, 2000 years before it just seems outdated. Right. Um, and they call it out. Yeah. Which is great, too. I was going for innocent. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They're funny every time they come on. Their shtick doesn't get old. No. I'm actually sort of surprised. And I, I could be incorrect about this, although I don't think I am. Um, I'm surprised that they never got either a spinoff or a cartoon together. Listen... From your mouth to the mouse's ears, it, it could be you might have just pitched the next Disney Plus show for all we know. I would watch. I'm down. Week. I'm down for that. I'd watch every week and I'd buy the, the DVD Blu-ray combo pack to purchase <laughs> just to have in my collection. If those two got a show on Disney Plus, forget it. Yeah. I'd be all over it. Um, I wish they were more represented in the parks. So they come out with Megara at a lot of these after party or at late night parties that um, DVC members, annual pass holders get to attend. Also, these um, Disney after dark parties that cost more. I it's my understanding that Megara Pain and Panic had like a four and a half hour line a couple of months ago at wow. one of the after parties. Well, maybe that's something. Supposedly, we're getting a new country in Epcot. I think you'd be remiss not to put Greece in there. And, you know, th this is obviously a great vehicle for them yeah, before to see we, them more. You know what we got to do? Maybe, and I'm going to throw a curveball at you. So get ready. Oh, you know I love these. Yes. As Scar would say, be prepared. Oh, you hit me with the Scar. After we do news, we had D23 Expo coming up this weekend. Maybe I want to get your predictions for the expo. Like you can even just give me one prediction. D now we're at the end of the show. At the end of the show. Okay. So All right. Give me a little. It. Well, I have been thinking about it for like a month, actually. Of like, what could they possibly announce now? Because they already at Comic Con announced, you know, the the 
what are we second third gen of marvel yeah which is all going to change now thanks sony um <sighs> yeah there was something to be said for recording late this week yeah <laughs> I don't know. Th- this is tough. All right. Give me till the end of the show. Well, of course. We're going <laughs> to wait until after the news. Um, let's talk about the music. Um, the music, I think, is sort of what makes this movie. The characters are great. The casting was great. But the music in this is phenomenal. And thank you, Alan Menken. Of course. Here's the interesting thing, though. For as much as I do love the music... I feel like the story could have been told without it. I'm not sorry we have it, but I just feel like because we're talking about Greek mythology, I almost feel like they could have done like an Emperor's New Groove thing where it's not a musical. They have like one song at the end. And I feel like that could have happened here because this is one of the rare musicals where the songs don't really move the story forward. Um, It's more... Like inner monologue and not plot driven. Yeah. I we can talk you, about them when, individually. Yeah, I mean we will. When you get the I'm, muses, I'm blanket statementing. When you get the muses in the beginning of the film, I said before, they're a vehicle for moving the story forward. They sort of act as narrators, although we have a narrator at the very beginning. Uh, speaking of cameos, Charlton Heston. Yes. That was shocking. Yeah. Because when you think of all the people who probably shouldn't be in Disney movies, he's he's up towards the top of the list there. And kind of was at the time. <laughs> um, see, I disagree with you. I love the Muse's songs, but I feel like they're better transitions for the narration. Like I said before, I love how they, they ground everything and come back to the pottery. But I feel like their songs especially do nothing to move it forward like zero to hero i mean it, it, it's pretty self-explanatory it lends because there's the montage and you, you obviously need a song but it doesn't do anything for the plot yeah slow your roll back up back up i'm trying to make a point i needed it as an example okay fine go the distance start at the beginning sure. we're going to we're going to go to the distance okay because we're going to like work in order here as we always do. I was trying to make a point. Leave me be. Uh, go the distance for as much as the film was not on my radar, the song absolutely was. Instant classic. Oh, yeah. No, and I think because it reminds me of like a Broadway show tune, I think that's why I I love it so much. Uh, and I mean, who's going to argue with Michael Bolton? Certainly not me. It's a great message. I love the double meaning that you can go anywhere, that y- you go to where you belong and you go the distance in life to achieve greatness. It's not just the destination, but it's also you as a whole. Go the distance. That's true. I never I never thought of it that way, but You're that's welcome. a good way to look at it. The only thing I don't like about the sequence is that it's broken up into two sections because he starts singing about going the distance, then goes to the temple, and then once he's got his assignment, if you will, picks up the rest of the song. Which I think was also part of the reason why we didn't love the music of Moana. Because that's basically... The biggest song in Moana is that exact thing. It just keeps you coming in and out of it constantly, constantly, constantly. And it's not like it's a refrain. If it picked up at the end of the movie, yeah, sure. 
makes total sense because he's, you know, he's completing his hero's journey. This is just broken up. Yeah. And I, I love this. Like, that's you you lose the build. Like, when you put it up against something like part of your world or even maybe that's not fair because you're talking about male and female songs. Uh, we're really going to have to do Hunchback soon because I, I keep going back to it. But uh, out there, Quasimodo's song. That song just builds and builds and builds and then it delivers at the end. And this, it's like you're cutting it off at the knees right in the middle. Yeah, I'll give you that. Like, I like the Bolton version better. And, like, usually with every Disney song, I don't like the radio versions. Looking at you, Demi Lovato, nobody can sing Let It Go. This one, I actually like the radio version better. One Last Hope. I think it works for DeVito. I think it's a great piece. Um, Excuse me. It's a great piece for showing the passage of time. And it gives DeVito the opportunity to have a song without having to necessarily sing. Because he's more talking through the song. Sure. But I just, it's fun. I like it. I always have. It's a really long song, but it doesn't get old. Like when when we watched it for the second time, I was like, this song goes on forever. But like they still give you something new in every single verse without it getting stale. It definitely is of it. Of all the songs, it's probably the one that's the least repetitive. Yes, but I think as far as... Is it my favorite song? No, but it's probably my favorite sequence. Mm -hmm. Because I think it just lends itself so well. We don't have a villain song, and that bothers me. James Woods doesn't need a villain song. He has enough going on here. I guess you know what I think of... Hades also doesn't need to sing his motivation. He's just not... To me, he's more used car salesman. He doesn't have the panache. I want a fun villain song. I know you do, but that doesn't mean that you should always have one. You know what I guess I'm thinking of? And and just bear with me, but I'm I'm gonna talk about the other studio for a second. Okay. Um I love Anastasia. And never seen it. What? Why would I have watched Anastasia? There was something in it for everybody. You seriously missed out. I watched Fern Gully. Whatever. We're not talking about Fern Gully. Um, I couldn't. I, I couldn't tell you anything about Fern Gully. But back to my it. villain song. Rasputin in Anastasia has like the best villain song. I dare even say it's up there with "Be Prepared for Me." And it's it's you know all the things I love about it. It's got the panache and the flamboyance and the green fire. And I wanted to see Hades do something theatrical with the blue fire. I'm seriously missing it. But uh, I disagree, though. I don't think Hades needs a song. I think it works for Jafar because he's got some panache. I think it works for Ursula because she's bombastic and she's over the top. Hades is more out to get you and out he's out there to outsmart you and he's a con artist. He's basically a con artist. I don't so need- sing about that with the fates backing you up. This is a great no, number. No, no, no. I, I totally disagree. But we're going to agree to disagree. Just like we're going to agree to a disagree on Zero to Hero. I love Zero to Hero. I think it doesn't get its respect I don't think it gets its accolades. I think it's a forgotten classic. And I love, I love like the church gospel thing. Like I want to stand up and start like, <laughs> I, I, I just want to get up and start dancing. 
I didn't say. I would, listen, I would look like if I saw this in theaters. I look like something out of the Blues Brothers. <laughs> You'd look like Hercules, Hercules. When, when Elwood starts dancing down the aisle in the church, <laughs> that's me when Zero to Hero comes on. I love this song. You're I gonna love this knock your microphone out of the stand. That's okay. I can pick it up. Um, <laughs> just like they pick up the tempo. <laughs> I didn't say I didn't like the song. I just, I can't even think right now. Um, I like the song. I'm just saying it does nothing for the plot. We know. We know that he's a hero now. We know that he saved Thebes. We get it. But well, similarly, it, it serves as a to show a passage of time. That's you, that's what it is. You need the monster. And see, okay, that's where I'm saying that this song could have been just a straight non-musical is because now we're talking about two songs being used for the sake of passage of time and not for the sake of plot. Well, I mean, yes, it's plot, but you can still show that in other ways. Mm. We don't need the montage necessarily. Uh, yes and no. I, I think you need the montage because you need to show how big and how popular he's gotten because in his mind he thinks he's done enough to go to Mount Olympus and it takes Zeus telling him it takes more than being famous right no i i recognize and I that and i think but that if you didn't yeah. have this if you didn't have this upbeat montage i think you would have five or six scenes of him beating people up and it would just get boring and you lose the pomp and circumstance right all right i'll give you that and if there's one number that I think this movie absolutely needs, yeah, I won't say. What I love about this, most of all, first off, it does give... I, I think that that's, that's Meg... Obviously, it's Meg's song. But it gives Susan Egan the opportunity to show off her vocal range, show off her chops. And I love how Mencken is able to throw back here because it sounds like a pop song from the 60s. It's like in his kiss. Like, something like the Shirelles. That's what it reminds me of the most is in his kiss. Right, because then you've got you've got the muses backing her up. Exactly. And she's really she doesn't have a lot of words in the song. It's mostly the muses. She's just doing the chorus where she's like kind of doing the runs. But I, I love this. And you know what's funny about it, too, is that initially it was supposed to be um, I Can't Believe My Heart or something like that. So the 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 uh, melody was all there, but it was different lyrics. And I think it was Mencken who called it out. And it was like, this is so out of character for her. This, to me, just seems like something you would see on American Bandstand or Ed Sullivan. Totally. One of these things that's like, and now coming up on PBS... The hits of the 60s, and it's it's the girls that are standing there on the stage with the sparkly dress, and they're doing the shoop, 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 you know? I, yeah. I, <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying? Yes. You totally understand what I mean when I say that. Uh, yes. Right. I'm kind, my, my I kind of don't want to be on back. this wavelength with you, but yes, I do understand what you're saying. Any of those songs... I feel that this is as good as any of them. And had it come out in the 60s, probably would have been a tremendous radio hit. And I think it all you need this song because you need to like Meg for more than just her wit and her snark 
and her comedy. You need to like Meg as a character. And I don't think you accomplish that without this song. No, it totally breaks her down, especially because this is like the last song of the film. And usually you get your female song way, way earlier. But that's also when it's princess centric because they're doing their this is what I want song. So I think you needed her relationship with Hercules to develop to this point. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was, you know, that's the interesting thing about it to me is like, you know, I had only seen bits and pieces of this movie. I had never done it in one full sitting until my 20s, like we talked about at the top of the show. But this song is what made me question. I was like, wait, have I seen this before? Because the song is so familiar because it is reminiscent of that sixties era. Yeah. But I, I love it. I love it as much as I love, you know, part of your world and let it go. It's brilliant. I think that of all of the, um, of all the songs in this movie, this is probably the one that falls to the, back of the list and it shouldn't because go the distance people knew it because you still hear it at all the run disney races you hear at least um an instrumental versions you hear it in the park it was in wishes yes it was and people knew the michael bolton radio hit um even zero to hero i i think they used that in the trailer for the movie I think so. So that one sort of stood out. This one, I feel like, is the one that people forget about the most, and they they shouldn't because it's... It's the best song, probably. Probably. I think so. But, you know, we've said it a couple of times on the show, Hercules kind of falls flat in comparison to the other characters, so, like, you're going to take his one thing away from him? Right. His big song? Um, A Star is Born is the uh, song that ends the movie... It's another fun number. I think that it makes for a nice conclusion for the film. Again, it's sort of like that church gospel. And that really comes from the muses. But um, I, I like it. I don't have much more to say on it than, than I like it. Really. Yeah. It's a, it's a fitting ending. It is. Um, have anything else to add on before we give our final synopsis of the film? No. Um, I'll go first. Yeah, I think that's wise. Um, I have loved this movie since the day I saw it. I think that it appeals to everybody. I think that there's something there for everybody. And again, I hate to keep beating a dead Pegasus here, but (laughs) for a movie that, for all intents and purposes, is very simplistic, I think it tells a full story. I think it tells a fun story. I think that you do get emotionally invested in these characters. Yes, even one as flat as its title character, Hercules. And really, I should not love this movie as much as I do when the main character becomes secondary to the secondary characters, but the rest of them are good enough where they carry the film, and for me, it's forgivable. I saw it in theaters. I wore out the VHS tape. And to this day, if I'm looking for a Disney movie, when I'm in the mood to watch a Disney animated film, this one seems to be one that consistently climbs to the top of my list. I go so far as to say of all the Disney movies, the animated ones specifically, 
this is probably one that in terms of total views over the course of a year, it's in my top three. Wow. See, where where you have that, I guess that's probably where I have more like Pocahontas and Hunchback. Um, I have to say, though, you actually did kind of change my opinion because it's not that I don't like this movie, but, you know, there are issues where I can find a plot hole that crumbles the movie like that. And you sort of did. I know. And when your title character is, you know, phased into the background, but it's what you said is that the the other characters are so rich and they bring the movie to life. You use the word forgivable. I say it's commendable. And that's what actually just changed my mind in the moment. Instead of, you know, saying that the film doesn't hold up and it's, it's not good enough. I, I think that is what makes it hold up. It's, it's almost like what we talked about when we did Alice in Wonderland is that the story is not great, but the characters are, and that's what you remember here kind of the same thing I mean yeah there is I do have a little bit of issue where the main character kind of falls to the background that's that's a problem and that's something that if they do the live action they're certainly going to have to address they're going to have to you have to make Hercules the hero pun most definitely intended um but yeah I think you're right because the other characters are you know just so vibrant that's what makes the movie hold up and stand out and um I wish I had grown up on this movie honestly because I feel like if I had seen it as a kid and it was just part of my my repertoire of Disney films I wouldn't find so much issue with it Mm. now I'm just you know like there were things that we questioned about Little Mermaid but it's my favorite movie and I'll turn my head the other way I don't have that same nostalgic attachment with this, so I'm ready to pick it apart. However, the the Hades thing, that's a massive oversight. No doubt about it. And if if you had not pointed that out to me, and that might be because I loved it so much as a kid that I kind of had those blinders on, um, had you not pointed that out to me, I don't know that I ever would have caught on to it. In all the years I've been watching it, I've never thought about it that way. I think it's a valid point on your end. I think that it's without question a flaw. But... Then again, if you if you critiqued it so much from that standpoint, then then the whole movie's over before it even really gets started. Right. I called out the same thing with Triton and his trident, you know, and how he ha- he was able to control the sea. That's the real mythology of Triton. Right. So and that's what I'm that's um, what I'm saying. That's exactly the point is that I I will overlook that. Right. Um I can't wait for this live action. Supposedly it's happening. They're saying that Alexander Skarsgård is who they're thinking of casting as Hercules. I don't know much about him because I don't watch True Blood. I never have. Um and apparently he's got a big role on that program. Um I do think before we get into some of our casting choices, I do think that this needs to be a musical, though. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, we're so attached to the music now. Yeah, I mean, they, they did do a Hercules movie starring The Rock, but it was, you know, it's more action-adventure. And that's the thing. That's where you're going to lose the Disney in this if you make it a straight it action movie. This can't be 300. It can't be Troy. Exa- that's exactly what it would be if you take the musical elements out of it. Um, 
I don't know about Skarsgård. I'm not too familiar with his work. Uh, I'm more a fan of Bill. Uh, Do you want it back? Exactly. Um, yeah, I I don't know, but that that's I think who they're who they're leaning towards. But nothing official has been announced, and that's what I was saying before: is we haven't got to do this in a while. We did our cast predictions with Little Mermaid, but every other film that we've reviewed so far, it's either had a sequel or the live action cast was already announced. So now, you know, putting everything aside with no nothing in the back of our mind whatsoever, we we can kind of think of our dream cast yeah if if you stick with the mentality that this needs to be a musical that sort of throws a cog in the plan for hercules in my opinion because they talked about the rock but he's played hercules before and i also think he's too old at this point uh, you know i, I just don't I also, think he would work he can't pass for greek that's no. that's the other like if they're doing this live action like i want everybody greek in this film or at least what they did with my big fat greek wedding and you have italians passing for greeks but you need nia verdalos and john stamos all over this thing oh that's who i want for my adoptive parents of hercules it would work i'm saying yeah right? it would work um then they talked about ryan reynolds playing hercules but i don't know that he can do the musical thing Hemsworth would look the part again. I don't know if he can sing. You know, Actually, the guy who would be great for this part in terms of being a muscular build with the ability to sing would be Hugh Jackman. But again, I think he's too old to play the part. Here's my thing. I did. Hemsworth was one of the first people that came to mind because obviously he's jacked up. He's got the chiseled look about him. He's also I mean, yes, he's Australian, but I think he's got enough of an ethnic look about him when he's tan where he can pass for Greek. Mm -hmm. Maybe they dye his hair a little bit, but my, my thing is, and we know he can handle comedy, especially because, you know, he was one of very few things that was funny about the Ghostbusters reboot. And I think his, his best comedy was in Endgame. When he just, you know, completely let himself go as Thor. But that's my biggest problem with Hemsworth is not only have we already seen him in a lot of Disney recently, albeit Marvel, he's already played a god. So right. I feel like I don't want to see that again. And likewise, I think Chris Pratt, same thing. He's got the build for it, but we already have him as Star-Lord. I kind of want to see somebody new. Um Here's the other thing I struggle with is who could pull off the younger Hercules and the older one. I think, and again, we've seen him already. I think Tom Holland would be great for young Herc. Um, but I'm thinking as far as somebody that who could maybe play both, maybe Channing Tatum, because he's got the build. He hasn't really done a Disney yet. I think he can sing. He's, I mean, Lord knows he can dance, but I feel like he could probably teeter back and forth between that adolescent and hero. Yeah, I know. I think one name you and I kicked around because we were talking about it the other day was Zach Efron. But I think because, you know, Efron can sing, you know, he's the thing. So he's Zach Efron, built like a truck, but he's lean chiseled. You need somebody that's yeah. a big, broad-shouldered guy. And that's where you lose Tom Holland, too. 
he can play him as a 16-year-old. I don't think he can beef up like that yet. I think he's too young. And I think that's part of what it is with Efron, too. Yeah. He just doesn't have the build for it. Um, Meg, who do you got? I think the obvious choice, though she's not actually Greek, I just found this out, is Mila Kunis. Um, I think just on sarcasm alone, like if you think to forgetting Sarah Marshall, how she just has the ability to like put Jason Siegel in his place in that movie, I think that's perfect for Meg. Um, my other choice, although I think it would be too much of a scene stealer, is Gal Gadot. But you'd have to also get like a massive Hercules because she's tall. Yeah, I also don't know if she has the vocal ability to sing i won't say i don't know if she can sing i just i just don't know yeah um yeah i think mila kunis certainly could pass for that mediterranean look i'm not gonna get her as ariel as it turns out so i'll throw anna kendrick in there because anna kendrick i think is a she's a good actress i think she can pull off the snark i think she can pull off can i or can i trust her um I think she can pull off a bit of selfishness. We know she can sing. I think she's too sweet and innocent. Got to give her a chance to do something else, though. I get what you're saying. I I still think she would have been a great Ariel, but we're not going to get her as such. Um, I didn't really have anybody for Phil or Pain or Panic. I have a couple of options for Pain and Panic. Uh I technically don't have anybody for Phil. I say keep DeVito because yeah. you're going to have to CGI him anyway. Yeah. So do the mocap on the face and put it on the centaur body and, and don't change him. Yeah. You could do like, maybe they kept James Earl Jones as Mufasa. So right. just leave him. It's, it's I mean, too was, iconic. Yeah. He was too good. Um, pain and panic. I mean, you just use Key and Peel in Toy Story 4, but they, I mean, they, they kind of come as a package deal and they work. You know they work together. That's that's who I had for it. I mean, I would I would have rather them held on Toy Story to see them in this. Uh, my other options would have been Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill. Mm. Uh, Jonah Hill is an interesting, Jonah Hill would be an interesting casting Rogan and I liked Rogan in Lion King. It maybe I don't know. And then my other choice, a little out there, but I don't care because he is getting involved with Disney films. I'd like to see Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes actually making Kevin Smith speak, but I I think they could pull it off just for the chemistry alone. We know they have chemistry. Yeah, that would be very interesting casting. Um, I got my. I have one pick for Hades. He for me it's it's the guy. I struggled with this one and then once I thought of it I was like, "Oh, this is so obvious. I don't know that we're going to have the same one." Go ahead. Bradley Cooper. Wow. Definitely not. See, I would rather see Bradley Cooper as Hercules. We know he can sing and he can put on the muscle. But I And he's got the locks for it. I think he would just be a killer Hades. And maybe it's because we've seen what he can do with Rocket with the sarcasm and the snark. Yeah. But I'm kind of married to my choice of Willem Dafoe as Hades. And I don't care that he's older. He would be really good. 
That's that's actually a really good call. I'd almost trade you Bradley Cooper. Right, like when I'm when I when I tell you I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, knowing that we were going to review this, I was so stuck. And then as soon as I thought of him, I was like, "Oh my god, so obvious." Yeah, Buscemi would be interesting as Hades too. Now that I think about it, yeah. But I'm going to stick with my top choice. I lo- I love yours. I'd be happy with either of them. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what they do. But you got for the love Disney. Put John Stamos in here. He does your candlelight visual every year. He loves the parks. And he's the most Greek thing you have. Please, yes. <laughs> uh, let us know your casting choices on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio News this week. Quite a bit happened. First off, sort of off topic, but Disney College program application process started yesterday. So for all of you that uh, applied, good luck to you. We know yes. that you. we have some people that, that listen to the show that are of that age and that are looking to get into the program. Best of luck to you. Um, that was a big deal yesterday. Twitter went crazy. I was hardly on social yesterday, admittedly. People went nuts I yesterday. had a day. Um, Cruella, the film starring Emma Stone, has been moved. That broke today as well. Originally slated for a December 23rd, 2020 release date, now pushed back to May 28th, 2021. Interesting. Well, that's because the Steven Spielberg West Side Story is opening on December 23rd, 2020. And Disney acquired that in the Fox deal. So you're not going to go up against yourself. I don't know, though. I feel like Dalmatians, I think of it so, or, well, obviously this isn't Dalmatians, it's Cruella, but I I think of it so much more as a winter movie than a summer movie. 101 Dalmatians, yes. But we don't know enough about what they're going to do with Cruella. Well, hopefully the first choice is eliminating fur coats because that's also what screams winter to me. I mean, you, it could be all seasons. I mean, you gonna wear fur in July? No, but that doesn't mean the movie starts in December. True, it could take place over the period of, uh, a period. What of time. I'm interested to see is how they're going to like harden her, how they're going to turn her into Cruella Deville. Like, what is going to happen? And we discussed the live action and the animated 101 Dalmatians uh, films a couple of months ago. You guys can go back and listen to those. And I think I asked the same question then. Like, what are you going to do to make Cruella Cruella? I'm very interested to see what what you do here. Well, I think there's a lot you can modernize about it because, you know, obviously since the 90s, the big thing was that, you know, they'd... PETA especially didn't want people wearing fur. So if you modernize that now, especially with being vegan becoming so prominent, I think there's a lot you can do with it. Yeah. I mean, we're going to find out, but now we're going to have to wait longer. Yes. That's the point. And then the biggest news of the day, this was the bomb that dropped around, I'd say around three, four o'clock. Yeah. And I think it started to pick up traction around six. Um, Sony and Disney have seemingly ended their agreement 
in regards to Spider-Man films. So here's here's what happened. If you believe all things that you read on the internet, um, it would appear that Disney has first dollar gross of five percent on all of the Spider-Man films. And what that means is that Disney gets 5% of ticket sales from opening day. Day. Not weekend, not first week. Day. And that's it. And Sony gets the rest. So Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios and Disney tried to negotiate a co-financing of the Spider-Man franchise moving forward with a 50-50 split. The universal failed uh, fair deal. Sony said no. And it seems like Sony didn't even counter. They just said nope and moved on. It makes things sort of sticky for both Marvel and Sony. Because now that Spider-Man is no longer considered to be in the MCU... He can't be mentioned in any Marvel films moving forward. The flip side of that is none of the Marvel characters or storylines or plots or flashbacks, including Endgame, Tony Stark, etc. and so forth, can be mentioned in the Spider-Man films. Just when we finally get ourselves a decent Spider-Man franchise. At this point, you know what? I don't even care. Every Spider-Man franchise has been doomed, whether it's Tobey Maguire crying or that they can't make up their minds and come to an agreement. Just let it burn. You know what? I'll be honest with you. And, and I understand that we are a Disney podcast. I sort of get this from Sony's perspective. I get it. Because Sony does not have a franchise that's going to make the amount of money that Spider-Man is going to make. What I'm just interested in seeing how this all plays out is that this is the first company to go up against Disney that actually has some kind of claim or, or like some kind of legitimate power to stand up to them because everything else that's tried Disney's just thrown money at it and said well we're just gonna buy you Th don't think that's not a possibility either that that they buy Sony's film franchise the film division sure it's possible I mean I also get it too because I'm sure that some of these companies are kind of getting tired of Disney just buying everything right and this is the first one that's actually got a leg to stand on so I'm just I'm just kind of interested to see how this plays out with Sony shaking its fist at Disney. I think that eventually they get something worked out because I think for Sony, you're sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face because I think you're going to be hard-pressed to make a Spider-Man movie if you can't mention what happened in one of the most epic superhero franchises in the history of cinema, in the Avengers. No, and that's where it's like... Come on, come to an agreement. Don't do this to the fans. Well, it's that's not right. They don't care about the fans. What they care about is leveraging Disney money. for more money. So in a perfect world for Sony, Disney does not negotiate anything here, and they just get their 5% of opening day. What do I think is going to happen? I think you're going to see like a 70-30 split in favor of Sony. That's what I think you're going to see. Yeah, because I don't think either is going to give it up. Well, they already have. They already have. 
Dis- Disney has given it up. They they haven't sold the character, but they have no distribution rights. But that's what I'm saying. I don't think they're going to let go of Spider-Man that easily. Not after the success of Endgame. This is going to be a game of chicken. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, I do think they reach an agreement, and I think it's going to be in favor of Sony. That's what I think. Yeah, I th- I think this is kind of one of those instances where it's like you can't win them all, Disney. Yeah, just say okay and make an agreement. Let us know what you guys think on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. D23. Talked about it at the top half of the show. Um, predictions for D23 Expo. I think we both touched on the fact that... Um, We're getting a country. And I, I, think, I think it's Greece. I agree with you. I think it's Greece. Well, it's not going to be Russia. No. But they already have the building that gets used. Like the bathrooms are back there and they use it for storage. But it sort of and has like a Sometimes you see it. it. Sometimes you don't. I think that that was built to be Greece and they just never finished it or never moved forward with it. Yeah. But I think that's a possibility. Um, I think you're going to see... Something will come out for Disney's 50th, for Walt Disney World's 50th. Some people think that we're getting the fifth gate. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm not sure what that thing is because I think that this is going to be very, very Disney Plus centric this weekend in Anaheim. I think so. We did, by the way, that was also... Uh, news of today. We got our first look at Loki in the Disney Plus series. They released a still of him. And it seems like Ewan McGregor is coming back to do a limited series playing Obi-Wan Kenobi again. Yeah, I definitely think it's going to be Disney Plus centric, though. I mean, we know most of the series, like, you know, we know Lady and the Tramp is going there. We know a lot of the Star Wars and Marvel things that are going on Disney Plus. Um, But lately, there's a lot of rumblings about the Fox acquisitions. And they're saying that uh, Disney is going to remake a lot of those properties. There was a rumor going around they might redo Home Alone. Um, But most of what they would do, I believe, for Fox would be going to Plus and Hulu. Yeah. Um, If I'm going to throw a dark horse prediction out there, and and I'm stretching, and I... It probably won't happen. I'm almost certain it won't happen. But if we're just doing this for fun, I think for the longest time, there's been rumors of a Boba Fett movie. And I don't think we need a Boba Fett movie. But they've been talking about doing one. Um, I know they have The Mandalorian coming out. Could they do a Boba Fett? I mean, just make him his own film? (sighs) Maybe... I think that they have too much Star Wars going on right now. Apparently, they've already started filming the second season of The Mandalorian. We haven't even seen the first season yet. Yeah. Favreau's directing it. That's what I was going to say, actually. I think we're going to get another Favreau announcement. And, and yeah, you want to go Dark Horse? I bet he's going to do a live-action Bambi. He's tackled everything else. Why shy away from that? Yeah, maybe. Um... But I'm thinking something for the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. I don't know what that something is, though. So this isn't a terribly good prediction. Really, Greece was my Gr- Greece was my my bullet in the chamber that I had. 
I don't know. I, I, I can tell you I don't think we're getting a fifth gate. That seems to be the one thing that people keep talking about, and I don't see it happening. And I don't think they care that, that Universal is adding a third part. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think they're going to hold and see exactly what Universal does with their third gate. Um, and And then if they do a fifth, figure out a way to combat that. If they do a fifth gate... Have to be Marvel. It's probably going to be Marvel. Um, I would agree. See, here's the thing. Here's where adding a fifth gate gets sort of sticky. You've already got... My money? Well, yes. (laughs) You're building a Guardians of the Galaxy ride in Epcot. Yep. I know some people have thought maybe Pixar could get a park. But you just built Toy Story Land in studios. You could have done a Star Wars park. Oh, but wait, Galaxy's Edge is opening. That's what I've been saying with all of these new announcements is pump your brakes. Because we keep going with these IPs, but there's a lot more that you could do with them. There's been that ever that ongoing rumor of a villain's park. I just don't see that ever happening. If, I would buy so real estate. If <laughs> if anything were to happen, first off, you can't get a, a new you can't get a fifth park built in 2 years. No. If a fifth park comes, if. And I don't know that there's going to be one. But if it happens, I think you're 12 years away. I think that that's something that they're going to look at the 60th anniversary of Walt Disney World. Because you're not going to do, happy 54th birthday, Disney World. Here's a gate. <laughs> they're, they're going to do it for a big celebration. Yeah. You might even see it at the 75th. I just don't, I don't see this as being something that they're going to slap together. Universal gets everything done so quickly. Universal would announce a park and have it ready in two years. Yeah. Disney's not going to do that. I think you are a 10 to 15 year wait minimum if not longer I would love to see them do maybe a Cars Land maybe we get some kind of cars in there Um, or what I would really love to see and I think they had kicked this idea around since they got rid of Pleasure Island to make a Pleasure Island like on one of the little the little ones that Obviously, you need to take a boat, too, but have it be like Pleasure Island. Just 21 and up. A lot of nightlife there. I think they... I I agreed with you until the last couple of years when I saw what Disney Springs has become. Yeah, that's true. No, they've, they've done more than enough with nightlife there. Well, you guys can let us know what you guys think, uh, what your prediction is for D23 Expo. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. If you ever want to go to a D23 Expo or to go visit the fifth park that does not exist <laughs> or go visit any of the parks that do exist. Or take a cruise. Or get any in, of those things. Get in touch with me either directly through our social media or you can shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.